Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Culture and Compliance Chronicles, a podcast series focused on the behavioral science approach to risk management. I am Tina Yu, a litigation and enforcement associate at Robeson Gray. I'm joined by my colleague, Amanda Rad, a litigation and enforcement partner and co-chair of Robeson Gray's Global Anti-Corruption and International Risk Practice. We have two very special guests with us today. We're thrilled to welcome back Richard Bustrong, CEO of Frontline Anti-Bribery LLC, a consultancy dedicated to assisting organizations with anti-bribery compliance challenges as they impact frontline business teams. Our other guest is Jules Colburn-Baber, a partner at Deloitte, which I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with. Jules, however, is our expert for today, as we will be delving into the very important role that behavioral science can play in testing and monitoring and how to make our tools more effective in identifying misconduct. A little background on how this podcast came about. Jules, Richard, and Amanda were going to have an engagement in London in early March, bringing together compliance leaders from the greater London business community. This podcast was going to be part of that event. But due to what were then initial outbreaks of COVID-19 in London, we canceled the in-person event, but went ahead with this podcast, albeit from our respective and separate locales, but thanks to the remote technologies that we are using here. In this podcast, you will hear us address issues including compliance communications, partnerships with business peers, messaging, monitoring and testing, among others. And when we start to return to business, these issues are going to be even more critical. Multinationals are going to be anxious to return to business, to reestablish supply chains and connective customers after restart revenue streams. At the same time, compliance initiatives, especially in-person training and interactions, have been postponed with uncertainty as to when they will be resumed. Addressing these commercial pressures with shifting compliance resources is going to be a challenge. Thus, as you hear our exchange of perspectives from different legal, forensic, investigatory, and commercial experiences, we hope you will challenge yourselves and to think about how these issues can be addressed in your organizations. This is especially the case to keep your compliance programs moving forward in tough commercial and market conditions. We wish everyone good health, safety, and well-being. Thank you for joining us. So with that, let's get started. To kick us off, I'd be very interested to hear your perspective on what you think is the weakest link in a traditional compliance program. Sure. Hi, this is Amanda. Thanks, everybody, for joining today. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges in compliance programs is the segregation or separation between those really on the front lines in the business and the compliance or control functions, and really a disconnect between what each is trying to accomplish and what the reality of the situation is uh, really on the front line for the people that are in the business. Sometimes I think we we make policies and procedures that are tailored and, of course, are risk-based and fit the law and do all of the things that we want them to do, but without having enough conversations with the people that are really going to be using those policies and procedures and understanding exactly what are the challenges that they might be facing, how are they going to interact with the policies and procedures, uh, you know, what, are, what day-to-day is life going to be like. And so more dialogue, more discussion, and uh, more just not assuming the law is going to tell us what the policy and procedure should look like, I think, is really needed in this space. But Jewel is interested in your thoughts on this. 
Amanda, I, I agree. I think um, I think collaboration between the business and uh, the the front line is is crucial. Um, and, and senior management, I think, have a very important role to play to champion um, the behaviours that they expect, which will help drive the compliance agenda and therefore help drive that collaboration. But for me, there's also the challenge around um, embeddedness. We often see, or I often see, um, organisations having put a lot of effort into risk assessment and the design of uh, policies and procedures. And then it comes, the, the challenges they really face where the rubber hits the road is the embeddedness of those policies, policies and procedures and the, the implementation of them um, it, throughout the organisation. And there might be some of those practical issues that we, we all know about in terms of remote locations or operations in different jurisdictions um, that can have, you know, that can create problems with implementation. But then I think there's the, the second piece to it clearly, which is much more than, and we, we'll probably talk about this a bit more, but much more than policies and procedures, but is around developing um, the, the appropriate culture such that there are, um, if you like, the, the everyday behaviours of, of employees um, are in alignment with uh, the, the, the compliance objectives and the wider firm objectives. And, and the other bit for me beyond embeddedness then, so it's ensuring uh, a, a compliance program is appropriately embedded, it's then ensuring that that compliance program remains relevant and remains at the forefront of people's agendas. I think anything with a human factor in it is um, naturally that decays over time um, in terms of its uh, efficiency and effectiveness. And I see that as a significant danger with compliance programs that their effectiveness can decay over time because humans are involved. So ensuring that people have appropriate um, and, and the very um, relevant training on an ongoing basis, ensuring that senior management aren't simply championing, championing uh, policies and then forgetting about it, but it's an, it's an ongoing activity that must keep these uh, 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 programs at the forefront of people's minds and at the forefront of the agenda. So I think that's probably sort of some of the, some of the key areas of uh, a weakness I see. Richard, what about your, um, your experience? Yeah, I think that you and Amanda just well described a bit of our compliance journey, right? I mean, if we look over just the past four or five years, so many of these programs were originally developed with sort of a criminal law lens, right? An eye toward the regulator. So when I first started deep diving into the compliance discourse, the, the, the debate seemed to be around what do we need to do to have a defensible program? Right. If there's a regulatory issue, what are the core elements of a program that we need to have to demonstrate that we had a good or have a good faith effort here? Where now, as you both described, it's more along, well, we might have great controls. We think we have a defensible program, but is it embraced and understood by the workforce as a partner to commercial success? Right, and yeah. as Jules described, that that's not a one-size-fits-all challenge, and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. So, does a global program make sense to the different parts of the world where people work and they face much different risk? And that's anything but static. That's very fluid. So, I think it's a good sign that we're having this discussion now because it really is about 
how is our program intertwined and embraced with the needs of business growth? I think that's right, and I think the I think the um, what we've seen in the last sort of recent period around the much much greater um, public scrutiny about how organisations behave and people's uh, people's choices being start starting to be made um, in terms of whether they um, uh, purchase acquire uh, from from particular organisations that can be driven by um, the integrity with it, with which the organisation undertakes its business activities. So now we're seeing a an alignment or a gradual alignment of commercial success and, if you like, decisions made with integrity or business integrity, which clearly captures the, the, the compliance issues we're talking about. So increasingly for organisations, the compliance agenda is actually aligning with commercial success because you have, a, if you like, a, a population that is starting to make decisions um, in terms of which businesses it supports and which it doesn't based upon the integrity with which those businesses do their um, undertake their activities. Yeah, it's really interesting when you think about aligning compliance strategies with commercial success because it sounds pretty obvious, but in order to really do that, you really have to have all of the people involved in the discussion and the planning and the decision making and it cannot be done in a in a silo and I, it, it's hard especially as we add resources which are clearly important compliance resources to all of our institutions and and working on on these programs how do you make sure that all of those resources then are sufficiently embedded within the business and have a voice and are at the table when you're making the business decisions and you're making the business planning? And maybe, Richard, you can just comment for a little bit from from some of your experience on whether you, in in, in your past, felt that you were able to work together, uh, you know, with a compliance function and, and whether just working with some of the companies you work with now, actually, whether whether you see how you see that going and where you see some of the challenges are there. So in my commercial journey as an international sales executive from 1997 to 2007, there wasn't much of a discussion about embedding and intertwining. Uh, but now, Amanda, we're starting to see the growth, and it's really wonderful to to witness this, where we're seeing these compliance champion programs or compliance ambassadors, where these are individuals that are embedded often in sales. This is their day job, so to speak, or finance or HR, but they also have a little bit of ethics and compliance in their DNA, and they are a part of the compliance team as well to help articulate and to sort of spread the compliance word among their business peers. So I think when we're starting to see folks that are working in these support functions and these commercial functions that are also these compliance champions, and compliance ambassadors, um, from my understanding, a lot of the organizations I'm working with, it's like a waiting list to get one of those roles. They've become very popular. So I think that's another great sign that these discussions about the pressure to succeed and the pressure to comply are starting to now come together and people are thinking, how do we align these so that people on the front lines 
don't think that they're in the middle of competing corporate objectives. Richard, what do you think of the the business roundtable commitment that was made in August last year? So the 181 organizations that signed up to the commitment to, if you like, give primacy not only to shareholders, but to shareholders, customers, employees, suppliers, and their community. So effectively looking at those five stakeholder sets and saying we will, in terms of our corporate uh, objectives and the way we uh, act and behave in our corporate activities, we will consider all of those five sets of stakeholder groups with equal importance. So, Jules, that's a that's a great question. I'm I'm not sure it's, if it's a solvable one because from the C-suite and the board and high altitude, so to speak, I mean that's a wonderful commitment, right? And a wonderful way to engage globally. But what does that look like to someone who's tasked with, you know, KPIs and financial performance in a commercial function in a specific country or region that's got high risk. How does that get operationalized? What do you and Amanda think about that? I completely agree. I think the commitment itself is uh, a really admirable thing. The the real challenge is is in order to create that paradigm shift, because I don't think it's anything less than a paradigm shift, but in order to do that, as you say, the the real challenge is how do you you understand what does that mean at, at a high level from strategy and purpose perspective for all of those different stakeholders, because clearly the stakeholder groups will have some competing uh, uh, objectives. How do you operationalize that into the organization? And that's, that's a real a real challenge. It'll be very interesting to see whether anything tangible really is driven out of that commitment. And you do seem to have competing objectives, as you say, perhaps. I mean, they may be aligned, but they're still somewhat competing where you have different metrics. People are measured by different metrics, perhaps, uh, on what they're trying to achieve. And one of the things that that we've talked about uh, before, Richard, really is that sometimes we don't ask as many questions when – performance is going well. So, you know, if you look at the frontline business that is trying to achieve certain metrics and targets, when that's going well and they're meeting those targets, there's not an issue that we're trying to solve for or a problem that we're trying to solve for. And as a result, there aren't as many questions asked and as many discussions around compliance or really just around strategy and how to make sure that all of these various agendas are aligned appropriately. Could you comment a little bit on that? So, Amanda, I think that's very well said that um, there's a book called The Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson, and she calls it dangerous silence, right? Sometimes that we think that no news means good news. And, you know, it's not like it's intuitive that we come into work and say, what's what's working well in the organization, and let's turn over that rock and see what lies beneath. But bad behavior can hide behind good performance. So I think that, again, part of this compliance journey is to take a look at the atmospherics of success and to say, does this make sense? If our market is experiencing some headwinds and yet our commercial groups in these particular regions seem to be doing quite well, Maybe we need a better understanding of how that's getting done and just instead of just accolades to that team for doing a great job. 
I mean, that is not intuitive, and I don't think that comes easy to every organization. Yeah, and I think we've seen a number of instances in, in, in history where um, e- even when you have what appears to be or initially appears to be very strong performance, then there are even indicators um, that contradict that strong performance, and yet people still get um, blinded by the, 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 the perception of good performance. I mean, you pick up Nick Leeson as a perfect example who was making margin calls and asking the bank for money, but they and they kept on paying money to him to, to, to make those calls. And if he was being profitable, he would never have had to ask for that money. Um, and so you can even see organizations being, or, or people in organizations being blinded by that um, that, that uh, veneer of, um, of success. I, I mean, Richard, do you think if people had been, you know, if there had been someone who had been checking in on you throughout your career and the issue, and through the issues that you um, experienced, do you think that would have helped and that would have made a difference um, to what happened to you? Yeah, that may have been the one question I had 14 and a half months of incarceration to think about, Jules, because it's sort of like what would have stopped this story before it started. Um, I am not that unusual in that I spent part of my career in one part of a sales organization, which was the U.S. market, and then I took a role in another part of a sales organization, which was the international market. And I certainly had the opportunity and was presented with the FCPA to read, review, ask questions if I had any before I took my first flight in this new exciting role. So I understood that bribery was illegal, but then I start flying around the world and I'm in the middle of risk, Jules. And I think that if early on in this new chapter in my career, if someone had been calling and said, Richard, you should be calling us, it's inevitable that you are coming in contact with corruption and corruption risk in your new role. And we know you signed the FCPA paperwork, but how are things going? What what are some of the challenges that you've been hearing or seeing? We want to make sure that we're helping you because just say no doesn't operationalize this, which goes back to something that we addressed before. So Amanda and I have, we, we, we've called it an accountability partner, someone that if you're not calling them, they're calling you to see how things are going. So I think if that would have happened early on in this new chapter in my international sales career, I would have said, I'm having a difficult time. I, mm. I love this new work. I, I find it challenging. It's exciting. But I am struggling to understand how we're supposed to succeed in some high-risk marketplaces. I need support. If they would have made that call, you know, after 10 years of a very slippery slope, I don't think I would have been as forthright in asking for that help because at some point I'm just indexing one bad act to the prior one before it. So, again, I think it goes back to the challenges of are we preparing people for the real-world risks that they're facing before they're in the middle of it. And I think that's when people are more likely to course correct and share, you know what, I may have just made a decision. Maybe we should talk about it and revisit it. That's the way I think we can get people to talk about these issues. 
I, I think it's really interesting to think about how you would actually engage in what might be a tough discussion, right? So it's definitely something that you want to have more conversations sooner. An accountability partner is a fantastic idea because you get to really know them and you talk to them hopefully on a consistent enough basis that it becomes easier to have challenging conversations. But I think all the time of investigations I've worked on or matters where I've worked on, and you go into a very high-risk jurisdiction or in, and industry, and you know for sure the person you're talking to has faced challenges. And typically, you know, nine times out of ten, at the beginning of that discussion when you start talking to someone, the instant reaction you get from them when you say, have you faced any challenges, you know, I know it can be a tough environment here, what's that look like for you, is, no, it's okay. You know, it's it's hard for competitors, but if here, you know, I have a strong policy and program, and I fall back on that, and people don't feel comfortable enough to raise the issue that they are having a tough time or a challenging time, and it is something that that you can openly talk about, and it isn't something that you have to deal with all by yourself, but instead can deal with together, which is obviously the safest way to try to try to tackle that. But, but I think it's a challenge to really think about how you get people to know that that is the culture of an organization and that it's safe to actually have those honest discussions, because I think the instinct actually is to assume that that would be either a sign of weakness or something that wouldn't be supported within an organization, you know, something, a, a sign of weakness in that you can't, you can't control the situation yourself and you can't follow what is a very clear policy and procedure and you need to ask a question about how to, how to navigate a tough situation. And the behavioral research demonstrates that the more we're having those conversations when there's not a problem at hand and that we're just positively reaffirming, we know that there's tension between the pressure to succeed and the pressure to comply, and we understand that in our pursuit of business growth, your values are going to get challenged. There's nothing wrong with that. Just always remember you have a team here that wants to help you unpack those challenges, and the only issues we can help you with are the ones that you keep to yourself. So the more I think we're having those conversations, when there's not a problem at hand, I think at some point it starts to set in for those who face risk in their work that, you know what, I can pick up the phone at any time, I can hit the pause button, and I've got a team that's going to embrace my uncertainty instead of maybe making me feel embarrassed about it. And Richard, what you've articulated there very, very clearly is having is, is is the culture, isn't it? The right the right culture, the openness, the transparency to be able to have those conversations, but also the point that you, that you both made around the timing of it. It, it. You get to a point where it's just too late. Um, it needs to be done up front. Those conversations need to start to be had right at the beginning. Um, before, as you say, well before any issues or well before people are parachuted into those difficult environments. So they feel supported before before and during their, their experience. My question to the both of you is, whose voice is best to have those conversations? Does that, from your perspective and your experiences, 
does that sound loudest when it's coming from the legal and compliance function, or should that be coming from business leadership, or, or maybe both? From my experience, I think you really need to have it come probably from both, but most importantly to come very clearly and strongly from the business leadership and throughout the business organization. Because, you know, where where I started with this, where I think some of the biggest challenges are for compliance programs, generally speaking, is compliance can help shape, obviously, the culture and is a big part in in shaping the culture and in developing and implementing the compliance program. But day in and day out, it has to actually be implemented by the business. And having those that are also have the same metrics, have the same challenges, and are really working within the same infrastructure of the business organization, having them reinforce how they navigate challenging situations and reinforce that, in fact, there is a safe way to do this, and that is the only way that's going to be accepted, is, I think, different than a, what can be perceived as a rules-based imposed by an outside function that may, may or may not understand the actual everyday challenges uh, that the business is facing. I think that's key, because I think my answer would be ideally both, led, if you like, led by the business. But what's key, as you, as you say, I think, is from a compliance perspective that the the skill sets and the understanding are really there within the compliance capability of the actual scenarios and the situations that the frontline will face so they can be genuinely supportive and have that understanding of the challenges that they will that they will face and i think the only way for that to actually play out is for compliance to be at the table with the business leadership so that they are involved in those discussions on a regular basis because otherwise I don't think they ever really are truly informed. Thank you, Richard, Jules, and Amanda for these great insights. Our time is up on this episode of our Culture and Compliance Chronicles podcast series. We will continue our discussion on part two, which will focus on the importance of behavioral science and compliance monitoring. So stay tuned. For more information, please visit our website at www ropesgray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we discuss, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.